and the gates. You may remain seated, although we will revere the word of God in our hearts, if not our posture this morning. The text of our message will be mainly in verse number 18, but please follow along as we read in verses 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. May God bless the reading of the word among his people. Would you pray with me again? Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open the ears of our hearts to receive the words of Christ this morning. That we might see him as he desires to be seen. Not only through the eyes of Matthew or through the eyes of Peter, but we want to behold you with unveiled eyes in faith by the sufficiency of the word of God this morning. Father, we pray that as the word is proclaimed that you would uh, turn the myrtle bush into a fruitful vine, that wherever your word falls upon, life will appear. Father, we pray that you would empower us as preachers of the word this morning to have the, uh, the authority, the urgency, the unction of men like Peter who went and preached Christ. And Father, we pray that that message might first own us, that Rob and I would be the first among many to be changed by the word of Christ, that we not be hypocrites and shipwrecks. Father, we Pray that these moments will be sacred as you work in each of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is, is a, there is a growing opposition to his ministry. The disciples are feeling it. The receptivity is becoming limited and they retreat to a place of refreshing. As a matter of fact, as Jesus takes his disciples, uh, he takes them all the way, as far away, really, as they could be from the rest of society. He takes them all the way to the northern border, to a, a town once called Philippi, but became a, sort of a namesake, a, a place in recognition of, of the great Caesars, Caesarea Philippi. There, as far away, at least emotionally, mentally, uh, from the crowds, Jesus wanted to minister to his disciples. It was on the northern border of Israel, which is where we think of Israel and Lebanon today. There, just in a secluded place, Jesus began to minister to them. They were sort of getting away from it all. And you know, sometimes when we've poured our lives out, when we have ministered, and, 
especially when we don't see fruit from our ministry and receptivity of the love of Christ, often we find ourselves needing to get away from it all as well. So they went away. It became a place of meditation for them, a place of thinking, a place for some instruction, a place, no doubt, where they would pray together, a place for them to sort of regroup and plan out what would be happening from here. And they went also for their safety to this place. They had been busy and pressed by the crowds to this point, and as busy as they were in the busyness and the growing opposition to, by the religious leaders, Jesus knew that there had been a plot brewing in the heart of the religious leaders of Israel. And so, in effect, Jesus at this time and the disciples were more like exiles here in Caesarea Philippi. Overlooking this, this, this village of Caesarea Philippi was a sort of a fortress-like monument uh, called the Fortress of Caesarea Philippi. And it sort of overshadowed, and, and it was just a reminder to the village that Caesar rules, Caesar has power. And certainly it was a, a visual reminder of the, the man's power here on earth. It was becoming obvious that the kingdom of heaven, the message of the kingdom of heaven, was not as popular as the disciples thought it would be. And it was wearying to them to continue to minister. And as they went away to this retreat, these thoughts began to, to, to mature in their thinking. Christ is the one who had called them. He said to Matthew, the tax collector, follow me. And Matthew rose up and followed him that day. And others. Christ is the one that had told them to follow him. And they had, they had left everything to follow him. Their anticipation had been very great. But now they were realizing that what they had anticipated, how things would go, was not really working out according to plan. All that they had banked on seemed at this point to be a dismal failure. They did not see the, the growing hostility and the rejection of the kingdom of heaven coming. A few minutes later after this passage, Jesus will tell them that the rejection will culminate in a terrible event uh, as an execution of himself in Jerusalem. Hardly sounds like a motivating speech at a retreat. But the disciples were, were coming to the conclusion that many had not come to. Peter would sum up what they had come to believe of Jesus as God in the flesh. Peter was realizing, as they all were, that he truly was the promised Messiah. But they were becoming increasingly aware that the confession was unpopular. And so their hopes of a conquering king and a grand reception were being dashed against the desert rocks there. And instead of unveiling the truth in a manner of top down, Jesus used as the master teacher questions to probe the heart. And as he probed their heart, he began to unveil something that sits in all of our hearts. And it truly is the question. Is the saving power of Jesus Christ sufficient? Does the saving power of Jesus Christ prevail? 
does it prevail not just, you know, against our dark, the darkness of our society, but does it prevail in the sin in our own hearts? Does it prevail in the sin of our own homes? Does the gospel prevail? And so Jesus introduced to them a clearer and more wonderful chapter of God for mankind. He introduced to them the promise of the gathering of the gospel in a thing that is now called the church. Yeah, and that, this, is, this is a unique thing going back and forth. I, I, like, to, I like to play uh, ping pong and, um, or pickleball. And um, a good game is one that has a good amount of volleys. And Brad and I will kind of be going volleying back and forth here. So the first thing that we're going to see as we now come to verse 18 is that Christ tells. We're going to see four points here. You can see them on uh, the back of your bulletin. We see Christ tells, Christ constructs, Christ covenants, and Christ prevails. So four points, each of them two words, make it nice and simple. But Jesus, right from the get-go, in verse 18, tells Simon Bar-Jonah, he says, you are Peter. So the question is why? why? Why does he call him Peter? Literally the verse before, he just said, you are Simon Bar-Jonah. And then now verse 18 he says, you're Peter. And so there's a question around that, and there's actually a very large and ongoing debate as to why he calls him Peter and why Jesus says he's going to build his church on the rock. And there's the, the Roman Catholic view. And there's a Protestant view. If you're sitting here today, then likely you are in the Protestant view of that. But the Roman Catholic view views Peter as the rock in which the church is built. Now, the reason, they actually have a decent reason for thinking that. Because Peter, his name in Greek and in Aramaic, is associated with the term rock. It sounds very similar to the term rock. So there's some wordplay going on when Jesus says, you are rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. However, as the Roman Catholics would uh, view Peter as the first pope, we see just a few problems with that. I'll lay out three. Um, you could probably find more if you wanted to, to really take a deep dive into it, but I would encourage you to, to look and encourage you to look at both sources. But the first problem that we see is in just a few passages later, Matthew 18, in verse 1, see, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And so if Peter was this chief leader, this supreme leader, and Jesus was saying, on Peter I'm going to build, and he's the first pope, then it would seem strange that just a few passages later the disciples are saying, who's, who's the greatest among us? Second problem is that there's, there's no mention of Peter's chief status elsewhere in Scripture. In fact, just later in this very chapter, Jesus calls him Satan, which isn't exactly a, a compliment um, for anyone who may not be unfamiliar, who may be unfamiliar with that term. I would not like to be called Satan. So if you want to compliment me, that is not the way to do it. But just later in the passage, Jesus calls Peter Satan, which would seem strange if Peter was the the first pope or the supreme leader. And then the third problem we see in Ephesians 2, 
uh, verses 19 through 21, it says that the church, the members of the household of God, are built on the foundation of the apostles, plural, and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So the church is built on the apostles, plural, the apostles and the prophets, not Peter and the prophets. And so although the Roman Catholic view, is, it, they have some good arguments there. There is definitely some wordplay going on with Peter being sounding very much so like rock and Jesus saying, on this rock I will build my church. We would just slightly... Well, maybe slightly is not strong enough. We would very much so disagree on Peter being the first pope. So then, the question is, why does Jesus emphasize rock? Is there nothing there? I think there's something there. And we already talked about how Peter's name is tied to rock. It sounds very much so like rock. Another reason is Peter is speaking on behalf of the apostles. And we just read that the church is built on the apostles and the prophets. And so when Peter speaks on behalf of them, Jesus is recognizing what Peter's saying. He says, on this rock, this group of apostles, I'm going to build my church. But there's also a third reason. And it's because Peter, the rock, makes a right confession. And so on this rock of Peter, making this right confession, this rock-solid profession, Jesus says, on that I'm going to build my church. Peter's the first apostle to declare Jesus' true identity. So right when we started, Jesus was asking, who, who do others say that I am? And Peter, this is the first time that the apostles say the correct identity of who Jesus is. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. One commentary said that the text is not about a supreme pope, about a sovereign savior. And after Peter rightly confesses Christ's identity, Jesus then tells Peter who he is. So again, just previously, he was Simon Barjona. And then Jesus says, you are Peter. Now, it wasn't uncommon for people to have several different names. We see Greek names. We see uh, Hebrew names. We see Aramaic names. So it's not uncommon for them to have different names as there are different cultures that they're going in and out of. And sometimes there would be new names given to those who are converted. And so for him to have multiple names isn't uncommon. But Jesus hones in on the name Peter. Jesus is telling him who he is. Something for us to embrace and to understand is that our identity comes from our Savior. Not from anything that the world has to say. Not from what our neighbors say or our family or our past. Our identity is wrapped up in the one who has brought us from death to life. If you are in Christ, your identity is not found in what the world says. It's found in what he says. And so when Jesus tells Peter who he is, rock, and that he will build his church on the rock... The rock is Peter. There's something there. But it's because of Peter's right confession. That this whole passage, if you look at it, it's built all around a right confession. In the beginning, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And they give the list. And then at the end, he says, uh, he rebukes them, or he doesn't rebuke them, but he 
charges them to not tell anyone that he was the Christ. And then right there in the middle, there's a right confession. Who do people say that I am? Don't tell them who I am. Right in the middle, Peter is saying rightly who he is. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, all who agree with the confession of Peter are Peter's themselves setting a sure foundation. And the end goal of the foundation is that there would be more built upon it. You don't just build a basement and say, this is a great basement. I'm going to walk away now. There's more to come. And the very term foundation implies that there is more to be built. So Jesus says, I will build. Which one of those words has the emphasis? We, we could argue, really, that since it's the word of God himself, every word seems to carry, you know, infinite weight. We can't hear the inflection of how Christ expressed it. But nonetheless, we understand there is a great weight. There is an omnipotent power between I, between will, and, between, and, and underneath build. And so Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, but this, this confession is, is not really as a result of his own personal investigation, although he has been investigating Jesus for a while now. It is not built upon that investigation. Notice in verse number 17, Jesus reveals, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Not, not an outside preacher and not even by your own conclusion, but by my Father who is in heaven. This is a divine revelation. God has unveiled, he has opened up the heart of Peter to reveal that Jesus was the Christ. So the building of the church would mean that it is not by man's doing. The building of the church would mean that it is by God's revelation. It is not by Peter's doing or our doing. And so as Jesus, as the Father reveals who Jesus is, graciously to mankind, specifically even the elect, those who will be Peter's will be building the church. And he does so, God reveals the Messiah as a means of his, this is his method. How does a church build? How is a church built? It is built, firstly, by the revelation that Jesus is the Messiah. And it is built lastly by the revelation that Jesus is the Messiah. And all in between, it is all about the revelation that Jesus truly is the Christ. So the revelation from the Father graciously, mercifully to fallen man is God's method of building the church. And we could insert all sorts of this, this part is not a method of building the church, right? We could insert all sorts of strategies and things out of the box. But this is truly and essentially and wonderfully and mercifully the method of God to build his church, to reveal the lostness of mankind and the mercy of the Savior. And so that is his method. God is intentional in building his church. His spirit is striving with the heart of man. Not only do we find this intentionality and not only do we find the method, but we also find that God is willing to build the church. He wants to build the church. He loves the church. It's his bride. And so he is, he is more willing to build the church than you are willing to build the church. He is more willing to build the church than the collective wills of every church-going Christian in the on the globe today. 
He is more willing to build the church than the martyrs who are pleading under the altar saying, bring judgment upon the wicked. He's more willing than all of that. It is his desire. It is his will to build the church. So when Jesus says, I will build the church, there is not only method, there is intentionality, but also we see in his spirit, his posture towards us, that he loves to build the church. This is what he wants to do. He wants to do it by the revelation of his glory in the the vastness of the mercy of the gospel. Turn with me, if you would please, to Romans chapter 15. As the Apostle Paul speaks of, of the work of Christ in laying the foundation of the church, in, in building up something wonderful, he admonishes and encourages the church in Rome in Romans 15, starting in verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with the knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. And here we, we see a little bit of a, wait, wait, I thought we had just talked about man not building the church. But listen, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Iconium, Elysium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul sees that God's intention towards the world is to build a church where there is no church, and that God is the one who will build it based upon the preaching of the gospel. And it's a very special thing that Jesus is the builder. That is, it's not determined by man's efforts. Only the work of God can stand forever. And only the works of God can glorify God. So left to ourselves, the church only becomes like us. If a church is all about our glory, if it's all about our work, it really, it really just is self-glorifying. And it looks, it becomes looking like us. Left to our own efforts, the church is fraught with man-centeredness and with people-pleasing. And so we need, we desperately need, Christ to be the creator We need him to be the builder. We need more than just a Christ who even serves us from a distance. We need a Christ who will be intimately involved in our church. Amen. And by God's grace, that is exactly what we get. And we're going to see that here. If you look again in verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now, this might come as a surprise. I mean, honestly, it was a surprise to me when I first realized it, that this is the first time 
in the Gospels where the word church is used. Matthew 16, first time. And it's only used two other times in all the Gospels. And that's in Matthew 18, where the word church, ecclesia, is used two more times. And so there's something that we should recognize here, that a lot has been pointing to this. It's taken this long to get to this moment. And now Jesus uses this word, ecclesia, is the Greek word for church, but it really, if you transliterate it, is assembly. But it's not just any assembly. It's an assembly of God's people around at least two things. The people who know Jesus intimately. We see Jesus is talking to the apostles here. They know him intimately. And the second thing is an assembly of people who proclaim him boldly. Peter makes this right Confession, this right proclamation of who Jesus is. And he says, on that, on that right confession, on that right knowing of me, that is how I will build my church. Another commentary says that as we proclaim the gospel, we too are building upon the foundational confession made by Peter approximately 2,000 years ago. As we proclaim the gospel, the people who know Jesus and boldly proclaim Jesus. As we proclaim every time we proclaim it, we are building on that foundation that Jesus promised to build his church on. The Reformers would say that a church is the gathering of God's people around two things. The faithful preaching of the gospel and the faithful practice of the ordinances. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Lord willing, this morning you will hear the gospel proclaimed faithfully, and later we will partake in the Lord's Supper. That is what makes a church. And the church is evidence. As Brad said, we need a Savior who is willing to engage with us on an intimate level. The church is evidence that that very thing has happened, that Christ has fulfilled the promise that God has to make a people for himself. God often interacts with us with promises. If he says something, it's going to, to happen. It's going to follow through with it. And here we see Christ fulfilling one of those promises. See, previously in the Old Testament, God's people were identified by circumcision and obedience to the law. Circumcision and obedience to the law. And they consistently broke the law. You read throughout the Old Testament, you see all kinds of instances where Israel has gone astray. And it's like, my goodness, when is God just going to say, you know what, forget it. I'm going to go adopt a different nation. But he never does. God continues to keep his side of the promise, even though Israel continues to go wayward. And now, God has sent a man who is an Israelite. Who perfectly fulfills that law. And now, God's people aren't identified outwardly by circumcision of the flesh, but by circumcision of the heart. We see this in Romans 2.29. A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And so, this now God's people are identified inwardly through circumcision of the heart, but they're They can be seen outwardly through baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism being that initial um, ordinance, that initial uh, 
thing to proclaim to the world that you are a Christian and the church to affirm that you are, in fact, a Christian. And the Lord's Supper being the ongoing. I heard one, um, one man who's far wiser than me say that um, if the Lord's Supper is the family meal, then baptism is the seat of the table. These are the ways that we identify God's people outwardly. So the outward signs are reminders that God makes promises to his people. These promises, if you read throughout scripture, you'll see them as covenants. God covenanting with his people. And there, for each of these covenants, there's a sign that goes along with it. And so we see a, a covenant with Adam and Eve at creation. Don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You eat of this tree, you're going to die. And I'm making that promise to you. And the sign is this, this tree. Noah, he makes a sign with him saying, I, hey, I'm not going to destroy the world anymore. I completely unleashed my wrath on sinful mankind justly. But I'm not going to do it again. Not in the form of flood. And my promise to you, the sign to remind you of that, is the rainbow. Rainbow is ours, ours first. Just to throw that out there. You see, with Abraham, we see God promising to make a people numerous. More numerous than the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And the uh, sign for that was circumcision. And then we see Moses. Hey, here's my law. You want to know how to follow me? I brought you out of the land of Egypt. You want to know how to be faithful to me? Here's how. And he gives them the Ten Commandments. There's a sign. There's a thing that they can look to to be reminded of God's promise, his covenant. And with David, he says, you'll always have, look at the throne. You'll always have a king on the throne. Now, as we talk about this new covenant, God's people being identified by baptism in the Lord's Supper. This new covenant can be initiated because all of those other covenants have been fulfilled. But they've been fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the last Adam, whereas the first Adam brought death. Jesus, the last Adam, brings life. He fulfills the Noahic in that previously God's wrath was poured out on mankind. And now God's wrath is poured out on Christ. We see it with the Abrahamic, where God creates a numerous people. And now, through the finished work of Jesus Christ, we see a people being created and a church gathered, an assembly taking place. We see that locally, but we see that also throughout time and throughout history and we will all be gathered on the last day and be able to see the fruits of that we see it in the mosaic in that jesus is the perfect israelite who fulfills the law he is the only one who does not break that law and he is the king fulfilling the davidic covenant the king who is on the throne who reigns forevermore so now a new covenant can be established and we see that we see the signs of that through bread and wine and all those in the new covenant are his people, are his church. And so that is one of the reasons why if you are in a, a covenant with Christ, then you are also bound to Christ's people. You've been adopted into the body of Christ, into the family of God. That's why Hebrews 10 talks about not neglecting the gathering. This is such a wonderful thing to gather together once a week to, to remind each other of the gospel, of the new covenant that's been initiated through Christ's work. 
It's a reason why we encourage people to pursue membership because it's locking arms with one another, saying, I'm committed to this covenant relationship. Cyprian, um, an old dead guy, said that no one can have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. No one can have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. The church is evidence of God's grace in fulfilling his promise to us. However, fulfilling the promise was accomplished not through a passive or a defensive posture, but through one who prevailed on our behalf. So Christ prevails. Christ prevails. And in verse number 18, it ends with, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So what do you think of when you think of gates, gates prevailing? Perhaps in the Jewish mind, hearing the word gates, they would conjure up images of gates as where the city leaders would abide. You remember in the story of Esther and, and Mordecai and the city gates and, and then also in the Jewish cities, the leaders and the elders would, would gather. And if you were to go to the gates, that's what you were going for is, is either you're a, a leader and, and needing to go there to meet with the other leaders, uh, maybe make decisions and things like that. Or perhaps you needed some sort of judgment made as well. But maybe that's what Jesus was saying in the Jewish mind. They would have thought perhaps uh, maybe it's the leaders the religious leaders who are pressing against the disciples in Christ at this time, or who will eventually press against the gospel and the church. Is it the gates? Is it the religious leaders? Well, we certainly could see that would be applicable, couldn't we? We see the forces of evil who are organized and trying to squelch the message of the gospel all around the globe today. We feel, we feel that opposition in ourselves. Uh, is that what it means? Uh, we think that uh, probably Jesus is speaking on a more literal sense, actually. A more literal sense that Jesus is projecting. The image isn't necessarily, although it can apply, there certainly is truth there, that evil leaders uh, who encompass a great enemy against the church, but perhaps Christ is speaking to a greater enemy than the forces of evil, and that is death. Our English Standard versions render this verse the gates of hell, but really other versions that actually lean even more literal uh, say the gates of Hades. Hades is the word and, and the idea of the grave itself. It not necessarily means hell as you think of the, the place of the abiding punishment under the wrath of God for those who will be banished from his presence forever. Not necessarily is that involved in the idea of Hades, the idea of Hades is that once you're there, you don't come back. And so it has gates. And oh, how we long that the gates of Hades would open today in many ways, don't we? That, that, that we could see those who have departed us too early. It is the idea of finality, and there is, it definitely is the feeling of remorse. It is the idea of total ceasingness. And it's the idea that death... Death holds the dead, but it didn't hold Jesus. Death holds the dead, but death, the grave, did not hold Jesus. Notice in verse 21 in Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. But Hades will not have its day. Christ will prevail over the gates of Hades. 
and on the third day be raised. They are hearing Jesus saying that the gates of Hades will not prevail against him. Who makes that sort of prophecy? We won't look back into 1 Corinthians 15, but we could reference this um, at this point. Nothing in this world and nothing out of this world will overthrow or withstand the mission of the church or the church herself. So this is not speaking of hell in particular, but death. Now that we made that distinction, now let me just kind of move away and say it is less distinct. There's not a huge distinction to be made. The fact is that we can think of this generally as the forces of the devil and the place of punishment. But the idea of death, the idea here that Jesus is saying is that death doesn't have the last say in the gospel or the church of Christ. The Jewish idiom was, that is, the gates of Hades means the forces of death. So Christ is saying, death will not stop Messiah. I will be raised the third day. And death will not stop my messengers. It will not stop my message, nor my messengers. It will not have a ceasingness. Persecution, oppression, imprisonment, beatings. Yes, even death by beheadings and burning. But the true church of Christ is never extinguished. And the church outlives, in one sense, pharaohs. The church outlives Herods. The church outlives Nero's. The church outlives whoever you want to put in the blank there. The church at the end has its say. Why? Because its prevailing power is in Jesus Christ. The word prevail is a word that means uh, to go against someone strongly or to prevail over. And we might think of it as the word overcome or vanquish or in everyday terms of getting the upper hand. It's actually used three times in the New Testament, one of them being here. But listen to the third time that it's used uh, so ironically. In Luke chapter 23, the crowds are pressing up against Pilate, the uh, Pilate's um, last trial. And Pilate is a little bit undecided about what to do with Jesus of Nazareth. And so he asks the crowd, what should I do with this man? And verse number 23 of Luke 23 says, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. Prevailed. How interesting is it that the sense of prevailing that hung Jesus on the cross is the very prevailing that will not hold him in the grave. He will overcome their prevailing literally by the power of the resurrection. The gates of Hades will not prevail against his prevailing. And so the prevailing plea that led to his prevailing power through the cross, through the tomb, to the throne today, when Christ will not be prevailed against, even by the fiercest of foes, death itself. And so the gates of hate will not prevail ultimately because Christ prevailed. The gospel is greater than the gates. 
but also they will not prevail because it is the work of Christ. It is the revelation of Christ. It is the confession of Christ. It is Christ who covenants and Christ who creates and constructs. And Isaiah 14, 17, Isaiah says, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? So death can't destroy because death has been conquered. The eternal power of the gospel that the church takes on is the nature of Jesus Christ. Because the church is Christ, because the church is hidden in mysterious union with Christ, the church also is granted the essence of Christ. Death could not overpower Christ, nor can it overpower the church. Listen. The church will never die. The church of Jesus Christ will never die. Christ will storm the gates of those who are destined for the grave of Hades, and he will take them as his captive. Listen, as the writer of Hebrews says, since, there is, since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself took partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. By Christ prevailing, we are free. By Christ prevailing, we become overcomers. And so, in present tense, Jesus says to us this morning this way, I will be building my church and the gates of hell will never take hold of it. And this is not just the promise of the building of the church, but listen, the glorious promise of the resurrection of everlasting life. The gospel is greater than the gates. In closing, um, Brad mentioned the way that the church has outlived the pharaohs and the Herods and the Neros of the world. And there's a great quote that he and I both ran across by J.C. Ryle, who was an, an English pastor um, in the 1800s in England, and he was an excellent writer. There's several books by him that I would love um, to recommend, but he writes this about this very thing. Nothing can altogether overthrow and destroy the church. Its members may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, burned, but the true church is never altogether extinguished. It rises again from its afflictions. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one land, it springs up in another. The pharaohs, the herods, the neros have labored in vain to put down this church. They slay their thousands and then pass away and go to their own place. The true church outlives them all and sees them buried each in his turn. The church is an anvil that has broken many a hammer in this world and will break many a hammer still. The church is a bush which is often burning and yet is not consumed. The gospel is greater than the gates. And this morning, as we get to gather as two churches, this is evidence that the church continues to march on, despite the persecution that we've seen throughout the centuries. The church 
continues to be built by Christ, the builder. So as we go from here, four application points. One, evangelize. Tell others that the gates of hell will not overcome. We have a great message to share with the world. And as I say that, I feel hypocritical hypocritical because there are moments when I could step into a conversation for the sake of evangelism and I rear back. And so this charge is for me as much as it is for everyone else in this room. Share the gospel. Second is trust that Christ has prevailed. It's easy to look inwardly and see our own shortcomings and fallings and our own sin and think that my salvation is at stake here or think that this mission is up to me. Trust that it is finished, that Jesus has prevailed, and it's only through him that we will experience victory. Third, invest in the church that God has placed you in. Providence, citizens, invest in that covenant community that God has placed around you. Serve sacrificially, meet up with others, pour yourself out for the sake of making disciples in the local church that you're a part of. And then fourth, when it comes to your identity, trust that your identity comes from Christ. If you are in this one, the Israelite who perfectly fulfilled the requirements of the law, it has, has been awarded all of the rewards that come from perfectly abiding the law. He has perfect fellowship with God. If you are in him, then you too are granted that relationship with the Father. So I encourage you to find your identity, not in what you do for a living, not in your social status or your economic status, or the way you look, or any, any abilities that you may or may not have. Don't find your identity in that. Find your identity in the one who has purchased your salvation. And all who repent and believe this gospel, this good news that Christ has lived the life that we should have lived, and he has died in our place, the death that we should have died. All those who embrace that and turn from their sin, they will be unified with this Savior. They will have their identity in him, and they will experience victory through him. The gates of Hades will not be able to hold them back. So we saw four points. Jesus tells, Jesus builds, Jesus covenants, and Jesus prevails. Jesus tells us we are his. Jesus builds us in his image. Jesus covenants with us and brings us into his family, the church. And Jesus prevails on our behalf by paying for our sin and giving us his righteousness, this life eternal, this life that cannot be bound by the grave. Praise Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for authoring our salvation. Thank you for looking at our fallen state and for not being idle. Thank you, Jesus, for accomplishing our salvation, for living a perfectly righteous and holy life, one that we are called to live, but we fall short of all the time. Thank you for bearing our punishment, for bearing the wrath of God in our place. Thank you for removing our sin and for giving us your righteousness. 
Holy Spirit, thank you for continuing to work in us. We are imperfect even today in our application of this salvation. We are grateful that you continue to work in us, that you use others to sharpen us, to grow us, that you've adopted us into a family. We thank you for the way that you are continuing to build that family. Thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to come alongside. Thank you for the gift that it is to be reminded of these things this morning. Help us to leave this place and apply them faithfully. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.